0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's that time again. It's time for the With a Bullet podcast. My name is Todd Golden with my brother, Matt Golden. Matt, what's going on in your corner of the world? Uh, Not really too much. Just kind of the usual stuff. How are you doing? I'm on vacation. Ah, And I'm sitting in my new love seat, which I just got delivered today. Oh, nice. This this is going to be my new recording studio because... See, the old love seat and couches we had, we bought when our kids were babies, basically. So they had these kind uh-huh. of, you know, kind of padded down armrests, which weren't really armrests at all. These ones have actual real armrests, so I can, like, put the phone on it, and I can put my computer that I'm reading my shit off of here to my left. It's sweet. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like the best recording studio since Electric Ladyland or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but... Okay, so this week was your pick. Uh, Tell us about it. Okay. um, Well, at first, I was kind of looking through to see what years we hadn't done, and I noticed we hadn't done 67, so I looked it up, and it looks like a decent chart. And then I was like, oh, that's probably when our parents graduated from high school. And then I was thinking, hey, when did Sergeant Pepper come out? That was probably right around then. And it was. It was a couple weeks before this. And then I noticed one song on here that was kind of written for the Monterey Pop Festival. And I was wondering, hey, that was probably going to happen sometime around then. And um, it actually did happen the same weekend that this chart came out. Okay. But
1: um, there's a good...
0: What date are we talking about here? Oh, we are talking about June 17th, 1967. Okay. And, um, there's a pretty good mix of stuff here. Um, a lot of sunshine pop, a lot of nuggets type stuff. Um, some good, good soul. And, um, it's a good snapshot of, um, how music was before Sergeant Pepper. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of hints of what was going to come in this chart too. Well, I think it was a pretty fun chart and, I'll say this, I'm going to use some adjectives that you wouldn't normally associate with this subgenre of rock and roll, but sunsh- you mentioned sunshine pop. And for those who don't know, sunshine pop is kind of like the association, the mamas and the papas, um, the turtles bands like that, who, um, you know, were had reached the peak of their popularity before, like you mentioned, *Sgt. Pepper came out and it's a very pleasant form of music. Um, although most of the songs do have a little tinge of darkness in them if you read into the lyrics. But, I mean, Sunshine Pop was sacking and pillaging every other form of music in this chart. This is significantly Sunshine Pop-based, and that was kind of part of the summer of love, so to speak. You don't really – you think more of the San Francisco bands, but um, this is what people were listening to, at least at the beginning of the summer of 67. Um, right, right. A shitload on here, and you mentioned the makeup of the chart. I think what's really interesting about this chart, um, and Sergeant Pepper lends more interest to this point. There isn't a first line British invasion song in this entire chart. Um, the Hollies right. come in for 41. Um, I mean, later on, I think um, the Bee Gees are in it. I don't know if they count as first line British invasion or not. They're well, not that's... up there, they're not up well, there. This was the very old. first single. <laughs> So it probably doesn't count. But they're not up there with the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Who or the Kinks. And all of them are missing from this chart. So, and there really isn't a whole lot of, there's a little bit of Motown on it, but it's not as Motown dominant as some of the other 60s charts we've done. There is some soul on it, but it's kind of, there's a little bit of stacks, a little bit of um, Muscle Shoals, Atlantic type soul. But this really is dominated by the Sunshine Pop uh, bands and I think it's kind of cool it's a snapshot it didn't last long uh, either backwards or forwards from this point but um, but it's kind of cool to kind of capture that snapshot of that moment so um, so it, it is a very interesting chart but uh, I guess yeah. we'll get started uh, you get things going uh, I mentioned there wasn't much Motown so we start with a Motown song but <laughs> right. um, number 40 is The Happening by The Supremes and this was the theme song for the comedy film The Happening, which is about a group of hippies led by George Maharis and Michael Parks, who was, in our 1970 episode, kidnapping a mob boss who was played by Anthony Quinn. And at some point, Anthony Quinn takes over the kidnapping from the kidnappers. So it's kind of a wacky, sixties comedy. 60s. Yes, and this song was a collaboration between Helen Dozier-Holland and the film composer Frank Duvall, and it definitely has the theme song to a wacky 60s comedy feel to it. Um, It's it's pretty catchy, but it's definitely not one of the Supreme's best efforts. Um, But it was a number one hit, Um, their 10th number one hit, actually. And it was actually the last single to be released while Florence Ballard was still a member of the band. A couple of her songs that she did sing on um, were were released after this, but this was um, the last one before she got kicked out of the group. Basically, she showed up at one of their gigs in Las Vegas like totally shit-faced drunk, and um, they just got rid of her. And it's also the last Supreme single to be credited as just the Supremes until um, Diana Ross ended up leaving the band. But um, uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes for the latter part of the sixties. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But um, and also Herb Alpert had a version of this that charted his version made it to 32. So, but it's, I mean, very of its era. Yeah, is it's the best not. Way to describe it. It, it, you're right. It's not one of the better Supreme songs. It's no Doctor Goldfoot in the Bikini Machine. That's for sure. <laughs> right, right. They did that. They did the theme to that too. So, in <laughs> that movie, that movie's awesome. That's that. No, that, I, I've that, only heard about it. That is wacky 60s. I mean, it's 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 basically unwatchable, but it is it's wacky. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. I I haven't seen it. Don't pay to check but, it If it's on TV, check it out. It's not, it's it's so bad, it's bad. I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, it's interesting <laughs> for about five minutes and then it gets old real quick. Okay. Very very broad humor, too, which, you know, a lot of those movies were, so. Yeah, I'd imagine it would be. But uh, let's move on to 39 for you, which is Gary Lewis and the Playboys with Girls in Love. This was the second last of how how many top 40 hits do you think Gary Lewis and the Playboys had? Oh, God. Um, Let's see. Probably, I'm I'm guessing like five of them because he did have, for whatever reason, he was like on oldie stations a lot, I remember. Oh, you're not even close. He had 12 top 40 hits, but I defy you to name any of them besides this diamond ring because I can't. I can't do it. Oh, um, count on me was one of them. How does that go? See, I don't. I I might know that. I just don't know the title. Oh God, I I I forget. I forget what it. uh, I forget how it goes. But it was on oldies stations a lot. Yeah. So (laughs) this is also this. It this goes into the realm of sunshine pop. I don't consider Gary Lewis and the Playboys a sunshine pop band, but they're following the trends a little bit. Gary Lewis was the son of Jerry Lewis, so that certainly didn't hurt their chances of getting a recording contract back in the sixties. And one little tidbit I thought was interesting is that band member John West played the Cordovox, which is like a weird kind of accordion with a synthesizer in it. I had to look yeah, up what yeah. that was it's like a it's like a keytar with an accordion attached. <laughs> So it doesn't really get any better than that. So, but Gary Gary Lewis and the Playboys, I feel like the oldies portion of what you just said, we're right on the cusp of what oldie stations now consider oldies. And it's like they slipped back into the wave, like they're almost pre-oldies. Because a lot of this sunshine pop is what you would hear on an oldie station today. And it's funny how oldie stations basically focus on the period almost exclusively from like, 66 to 70 basically and so like gary lewis and the playboys most of their hits this was their like i said it was one of their last ones so they go more into the mid-60s which means they're probably a little bit more folk influenced at least in their early songs so not all of their songs but a lot of their songs just kind of get like a lot of early to mid-60s groups just kind of get washed out so you don't hear them Mm -hmm. much as some of these other bands but Anyway, number 38 for you is Mary in the Morning by Al Martino. Well, this is my first skip. It's basically just crooner type stuff. So, yep. It was a big hit, though. It was up 14 spots, yo. It, it was, yes. And I, I I was thinking we saw him at like Festa Italiano and Milwaukee once, but... Um, I was probably thinking of Dick Contino. Yeah, I so. think you were definitely thinking of Dick <laughs> Contino. <laughs> but uh, 37 for you is Harper's Bazaar with Come to the Sunshine or Come Har- to the Sunshine. Come to the Sunshine, yes. Um, Harper's Bazaar, they're best known for doing a cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Feeling Groovy. And Simon, or you know, it's very lightweight, another Sunshine pop song their sunshine pop makes the association sound like fucking Metallica. I mean, they are really, yeah. A lot of, um, you know, I don't know how to describe their vocal sound. I mean, it's not falsetto, but it's very, uh, light. It's, it's not very heavy in the mix, but, um, it's like it just floats into the ether. It's like barely there. So and it's a and it's a harmony group, so that makes it even weirder. But um, the <laughs> song title sounds like a rejected Carry Nation's single, or it sounds like it's from the hippie episode of Star Trek. Come to the sunshine. That sounds like something <laughs> Charles Napier is saying in that episode. It, it was actually the. It was a title of the Nuggets Sunshine Pop compilation. Actually, really, because it's not that good. Yeah, it's it's. It's really not, especially compared to some of the other stuff on this chart, it's pretty weak, but um, so, yeah. But I could tell, like the Carry Nations would have played this after Find It or something. <laughs> Find It! <laughs> um, come, come with the gentle people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> and this is the kind, actually, it's funny, you know, that's the kind of music uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls came out in 1970, and so Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer deliberately put anachronistic music in it, so they did actually borrow a lot of sunshine pop for that for that movie because you were beyond the sunshine pop era at that point. Part of the part of, yeah. the, hidden, part of the hidden genius of that movie, but anyway, uh, number thirty six for you is "Sound of Love" by the Five Americans. Um, this is another skip. Um, not really find out too much about it. It's kind of a Nuggets type song, but. Um, just d- decided to skip it. Okay. So, but as you're right number th- as a- <laughs> yeah, um, number thirty-five for you, um, Neil Diamond with "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon." I didn't originally have this as a skip, but I am going to skip it. Um, everybody knows this kind of got revived when Pulp Fiction came out, but I don't know. It's 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 actually what it was his biggest hit of the '60s, and it wasn't that big of a <laughs> hit. A lot of people think. Neil Diamond was huge in the '60s. He really wasn't until the very end of the '60s, but um, mm. but I'm getting it. So I, I this. go ahead with this with this song. Okay, I with that song. I just remember. I think you might have been there. We went and saw Pulp Fiction, but when Urge Overkill's version of that started playing, um, there was a woman in front of us who just like guessed. Oh God! What I don't. <laughs> I must I don't know if I was there or not. I don't remember I don't recall that, but it, it was it was pretty funny, but that's anyway. what I, That's what I did when they started um playing um the uh whatever, I don't know, forget it. I forgot what I was gonna say. Um number <laughs> <laughs> I lost my train. Of, I lost my witty witticisms. Uh number thirty four for you is for your precious love by Oscar Tony Jr. Um, this is another skip. I, all my skips are kind of at the beginning here, but um, you should get off your lazy of, ass of, and do some work. Okay, okay, but this is kind of almost like a '50s type song. So, but oh. but anyway, um, number thirty-three for you. Um, four Seasons with "Come On, Marianne." Okay, it's not. This is a skip, but it's not just the Four Seasons. It's the four seasons featuring, quote, The Sound of Frankie Valley, quote, which might be the most pretentious um artist title I've ever seen. It sounds like the contrabulous frabb traption of her professor God, I can't even say that. The contrapulous <laughs> fab traption of Professor Horatio Huffnagel from The Simpsons. <laughs> yes, yes, it, yes. It but does. I'm, the reason I'm skipping this is because Frankie Valley comes up later for me. So I'm, I'm not going to okay pay for that. Although, this technically, I'll explain the difference between the two when it comes up. But um, we're speeding right through this beast. We're up to number 32 When You're Young and In Love by the Marvelettes. Okay. And this song sounds a lot closer to like the Supremes' typical sound than what you'd expect from the marvelettes um it is a cover um it was originally recorded by ruby and the romantics um their version was kind of a minor hit only made it to 48 and it was written by van mccoy of the hustle fame yep he wrote a lot of songs a lot of people don't know that yes and um the lyrics are mostly cliches in this like The moon is brighter. Every day is the 4th of July. There's no mountain you can't, uh, no mountain you can't climb and so on. um, When you're young and in love, but I mean, it's, it's kind of decent kind of, I mean, like I mentioned, it is kind of like Supreme's light, basically Um, one of their last top 40 hits and their only hit in the UK actually, which is pretty surprising. And it was later covered by Donnie and Marie and um, the Jets. So Wow. Yeah. What a battle of quality that is. <laughs> yes. I wonder yes. if the Jets and the Osmonds ever recorded together. That would have been pretty horrible. I, I, I don't only... know how I know this, but I think the Jets are Mormon. So maybe some Mormon... I thought the Jets like, were of... Function... The Jets are from Minnesota, are they not? Yeah, they are. I thought they were. They're like of Somali origin, aren't they? they? No, they they're from Samoa. I think. Oh, Samoa. Yeah, you're right. Samoa. Yeah, you know, one of those countries that starts with an S. So, <laughs> but uh, huh. right. They did record together. Then maybe I'm not full of shit. So, could could be. But, probably, um... I'm generally full of shit. So. <laughs> But 31 for you is the fifth dimension with Up, Up, and Away. When I looked this up, it was described as, quote, a canonical example of sunshine pop, unquote. And to that, I have this very detailed and um, brilliant analysis. I wrote down, yep, pretty much. So (laughs) (laughs) I'll admit, I didn't think the fifth dimension went back as far as 1967. I, I don't know. I think it's because Aquarius was such a big hit um, two years later that it's like, I almost think that's when they started out. But um, of course they didn't, they started out back in this period, but it was written by Jimmy Webb who wrote several late sixties hits. He wrote MacArthur park, which probably he should be executed for. Um, He wrote Wichita Lyman. He wrote the worst that could ever happen um, among others. So by the time I get to Phoenix, he wrote that. Um, this was the fifth dimension second hit, which shows you what I know, um, after go where you want to go, which I think is probably better known by the mamas and the papas, I guess, but right. um, But the fifth dimension are, I think are kind of, you know, they're, they're considered sunshine pop as well. And I think they're kind of unique among the sunshine, sunshine pop bands in that they had a career after sunshine pop kind of, you know, faded out. So, um, the turtles, the association, the mamas and papas broke up um they were all pretty much done uh, within a year after this chart but the fifth dimension had hits into the mid-70s so um right there were one band that had a little bit of staying power so um but they're up up and away in their uh, beautiful balloon and wh- i i fifth dimension i listened to a lot when i was little because um our parents or our mom or our dad i don't know which i think our mom um was a big fan so so i remember hearing this song a lot when i was little even though i was you know that was several years later but so mm-hmm. it's okay it's not my favorite fifth dimension song but it's all right it is yeah, a whole yeah. example of sunshine pop i couldn't say it better myself right yeah it, it is yes <laughs> yeah yep pretty much so <laughs> this brings us to another artist I definitely would not have associated with 1967. And that's uh, number 30, A Society's Child, Baby I've Been Thinking by Janice Ian. Yeah, and this is, was actually a very controversial song at the time, too, uh, because it's about a doomed inter- interracial relationship. Um, the gist of it is that the girl brings her boyfriend home and he's black. Um, so her mother won't let him in the house and tells her never to see him again. And her friends and teachers put her down for seeing a black guy. And she wants everybody to just leave them alone. And it seems like she's about to tell everybody, Hey, screw you. I like this guy, but she doesn't. She ends up caving into the pressure and dumps the guy. And when it got to that point in the song, I was just like, "What?" I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I'm listening to this song for the first time in 2020, where it's not really that big of a deal. But, um, but according to, I mean, according to Ian, it was. I mean, she was only a teenager when she wrote this, and um, she said it kind of reflected what she would have thought if she got into that situation, but it wasn't based on a personal experience or anything. And um, like I mentioned, she did write this one she was a teenager and she was actually turned down by 22 labels for this song before um, Verve ended up putting it out. And it was produced by Shadow Morton. So it kind of has like a girl group Shangri-La's feel to it. And because of the controversy over the song, um, Ian ended up receiving death threats and like general abuse from the public. It was banned by a ton of radio stations and supposedly a station in Atlanta got burned to the ground for even playing it. Huh. But, um, but because of the controversy, she kind of um, scaled back her career a little bit and basically disappeared i mean she was putting out albums but it wasn't really high profile until at 17 came out about eight years after this but um i did find a clip of ian performing this song on a special called inside pop that came out at this time which was hosted by um, leonard bernstein and he gives her kind of like a long-winded introduction and like basically raves about the song yeah, and kind of calls out radio stations for being cowards for not playing it. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's def- definitely in the girl group mode, but I mean, kind of a interesting slice of history, I guess. So, well, and Janice Ian is herself African-American, right? No, no, she isn't. She isn't. I thought she was. Okay. Never mind. No. Okay, I'm stupid. <laughs> but um, so, anyway, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. But uh, I I I'd never heard that song before. So. Yeah, that, I I hadn't heard it until we did this either. Yeah. So. Well, that leads us to our long distance dedication. And what do you got this week? Let's see. At number sixty nine, we have the choir with "It's Cold okay. Outside." Okay, And you you might not realize this, but we have talked about this band on our show before. And that's because Jim Bonfanti, Wally Bryson, and Dave Smalley from the choir later went on to become um, the drummer, lead guitarist, and bass player for the Raspberries. And this was their only chart hit, and I was kind of surprised to see it on the charts in 67, because I always assume this came out in like late 65 just based on how it sounds it's half birds half help era beetles and but you can almost hear the seeds of go all the way in there um dave smalley takes the lead vocal on a track and um he did sing from time to time the raspberries um hard to get over a heartbreak would be the best example but he sounds a little bit different here kind of has like an unpolished, typical teenage-sounding voice, but he does a really good job in the song of selling that he's kind of annoyed and depressed that his girlfriend dumped him. And um, it's a really good song. Um became a big re- regional hit in Cleveland, um, number one in Cleveland. Um, but it only made it to 68 here, which was kind of a shame, but like I said, that's probably because it sounds like something from 65 um, um, wasn't current for 67, I guess, and ended up later ended up on the Nuggets box set and it's honestly one of the best songs on there, but obviously they weren't done putting out great songs. So I right. like to dedicate this to all of the bands that were precursors to great bands who are also great and cleveland had a lot of groups that were big in cleveland that for whatever reason didn't make it nationally and you go back and listen to them and you wonder why i mean the raspberries are a big example you know they're they're from cleveland obviously but um and there there were others though like um like artful dodger in the late 70s they were huge in cleveland and really kind of launched their quote-unquote comeback there um in 1980 but there's a lot of bands like that, you know, the Michael Stanley band, which you know they're they're all right, but um, right, you know, um, Cleveland had well, a Cyrus of... Cyrus Erie, which um, Eric Carmen was in before the Raspberries, is pretty good too. Yeah, they have, almost had have their own little um, ecosystem of their own rock and roll in Cleveland, which is kind of interesting. But so, but so it doesn't surprise me that this was a hit there and not elsewhere. And of course, back in the '60s, it was more common to have regional hits too i mean there were you know songs that were big in chicago you know that some of that lasted into the 80s actually but um right you know detroit kind of was its own ecosystem in that sense and um you know in terms of a song being big there and not making it elsewhere so um kind of interesting how regional things still were at this point um you know the big record companies there were more of them back then so it was hard for them to monopolize uh, radio to the extent that they maybe could later so right and i mean djs were picking their own set lists at different radio stations too so that kind of or being paid off by the record labels one or the other <laughs> that, that that also but um, let's move on to 29 here for you which is otis redding and carla thomas with trance well this is a great song and really the whole The whole song is just basically Otis and Carla just talking shit to one another, uh, over the entirety of the song. And Carla is the more aggressive one, uh, calling Otis a tramp. And part of the genius of this song is they're both playing roles. I mean, Otis is overplaying the idea that he's a dumb rock star, basically. And Carla is definitely overplaying it as a gold digger. And they kind of exaggerate both roles. Uh, but it leads to a lot of funny shit talking between the two. And um, and and on top of that, it's one of the best stacks, um, you know, backing, you know, tracks that they ever did. I mean, there's this is this would be high on the prototypical stacks song list. I mean, it's got the horns, uh, Booker T and the MGs, I believe, play on it. And it's got the drums. It's got all the elements of what makes great stacks music. And, of course, Otis Redding was their best vocalists that they ever had and uh, and Carla Thomas had plenty of hits in her own right so they teamed up this wasn't too long before Otis uh, sadly died but um pretty great track um from down in Memphis another area that had its own kind of ecosystem of music too so um very right. cool, very yeah. cool song I've always enjoyed this one a lot I remember what the first time I heard it I kind of randomly bought an Otis Redding CD in the early 90s uh, Cause I was, I'd always heard how good Otis was. We didn't really have Otis Redding in our house that I remember anyway. And so I bought a CD this had this on it. And I was like, wow, that song is really, really fun. It's funny. Um, but it's also cool in the music and it is, you know, irresistible. You probably hear the horns from this at, at like basketball pep bands will play like the horn section from this. Like they do a lot of stack songs. So um, very yeah. good stuff. Yep. Keeps yeah. Southern, yeah soul. Right song. Southern soul. So, yep. that leads us to another soul song. Number 28 is Here We Go Again by Ray Charles. Um, I just decided to skip this one. So because you don't like blind artists. No, no. You sure? <laughs> because I've always remembered you saying that, like, I hate blind people. <laughs> I never said that. And and I have done Stevie Wonder songs on here, so. I just hope someday you get a Jeff Healy song. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, there's only one of them I could get, so. I don't know. (laughs) Get the Roadhouse soundtrack on there. You never know. (laughs) But anyway, um, 27 for you is Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell with Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Well, this was on its way up the charts, although only two spots this week and uh, on its way up the charts to become one of the biggest Motown hits of the 60s, without a doubt. And this was Ashford and Simpson, who wrote a lot of the kind of the duet type songs uh, for Motown, like they did some of Diana Ross's duets. They did um, several of Marvin Gaye's duets with either Tammy Terrell or whomever else he happened to be working with. This was their entry song in the Motown universe. And Dusty Springfield originally was going to record it. And Ashford and Simpson, though, they wanted in, uh, like, into the in crowd with Motown. So they saved it um, for Motown usage. Barry Gordy liked it, and it paid off. And uh, this was a huge hit, and it's uh, definitely one of the more iconic songs of the Motown uh, of the Motown 60s. Unfortunately, Tammy Terrell's story is pretty tragic. Um, she was in... Um, both before this point and even afterwards she was she was in some pretty abusive relationships and uh, um, there's a story about james she was in a relationship with james brown in the earlier part of the 60s and he beat her pretty badly Um, she was in a relationship with david ruffin from the temptations and he beat her including whacking her over the head with a motorcycle helmet Um, she had also had headaches her whole life and Later on in 1967, she collapsed on stage at a concert with Marvin Gaye, actually caught her, um, and she was diagnosed with brain cancer, and she had a brief period where she uh, had recovered enough to where she could record. She recorded You're All I Need to Get By, another famous song, and uh, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, which is a very famous song, and she recorded those while she was in cancer treatment, Um, but it never really took and she declined and she eventually died in March of 1970. And there's long been rumors and they're just rumors. There's obviously no way to ever prove it, that the beatings that she suffered may have exacerbated the brain cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. I know Marvin Gaye felt that way, I believe um, you know, as he went on with his own life, but you know, but some of Tammy Terrell's own correspondence from that period is pretty inconclusive about that. So Um, very tragic Mm -hmm. story. Marvin Gaye was very fond of Tammy Terrell. I think, uh, she was his favorite, um, duet artist to work with. Of course he did a lot of duets and, um, so kind of a tragic story. And of course, Marvin Gaye had his own tragic story much later, but, um, right. So, but kind of a shame that, um, that two pretty good artists weren't able to, you know, what, what they did do was pretty memorable. So I guess we have that. So, right. Yeah but switching directions pretty dramatically. Number 26 for you, Matt, is Don't Sleep in the Subway by Petula Clark. Let's see. When I was listening to this, I thought, God, this sounds like three songs stitched together. And it turned out that it was three songs stitched together. Um, Tony Hatch, who was Petula's regular songwriter, had three unfinished songs sitting around, and um, he just decided to... Combine them and finish them with his fiancée, um, Jackie Trent. And they gave it to Petula Clark and um, ended up becoming a big hit. Um, the verses the verses, kind of have like a Dion Warwick, um, Burt Backrack type of feel to it. And then it shifts into kind of like a big, brassy kind of Broadway type thing. And then in the chorus, choruses, it's almost like a Pet Sounds Beach Boys type thing with like the doot, doot, yeah. doot, 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 doot doo. organ on it. Don't sleep but in the um, way, darling. That, that part. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But surprisingly, this song was actually somewhat controversial because of a... Um, she sings "Take off your coat and close close the door," but some people were thinking that she was singing "Take off your clothes and close the door," which was too risky for or too risque for um, 1967, I guess. So um, some radio stations did actually ban it for that. Yeah, I hate it. Which is. I hate it when Petula Clark goes blue. Yes, yes. But um, another thing worth mentioning is that this song actually appears in um, the Monty Python election night sketch.
1: Oh, yeah. It does, and it's doesn't
0: it? I forgot about that. It, it's sung by John Cleese as part of the extremely long name of the candidate for the very silly party. Right. So I've always voted very silly. <laughs> that that's the yes. party. Yep. But but this was her also her last top ten hit in the US. So. yeah, she comes from a different subgenre that kind of, like you mentioned, the British wing of like show music sort of. That's kind of what I guess I think of when I think of Petula Clark. I mean Downtown her best known song is a pretty good song. This song is is decent too. Uh but it is, it is kind of a yeah. big brassy British version of Barbara Streisand type stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I mean, it is pretty interesting. I mean, just all of that mixed together on this. Tula Clark but... got a lot of fame out of her songs too. I mean, I can even recall her being on like variety shows and stuff when I was little. I mean, you know, I was like, oh, I guess, should I know who that is? But, you know, at that point she hadn't had a hit in a long time, but she kind of maintained her fame um through that format for quite a while so oh yeah yep yep see but one one callback that i should make to one of our previous episodes is that um um hatch and trent who wrote this song also wrote the theme song for stoke city so for stoke city the fucker team yes yes that's weird yep why would anybody write a song about stoke city they're boring um trent was from stoke yeah they suck (laughs) but anyway uh let's move to 25 which is the loving spoonful was six o'clock well this is a skip for me it's not that bad but i gotta skip something so i'm skipping this so okay that gives you number 24 the tracks of my tears by johnny rivers and this is this is a skip too. Um, this actually is an oldie staple too, but um, just decided to skip Johnny. So yeah. Plus, it's a cover and of a probably much better version, frankly. So. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But twenty-three for you is the tremolos with "Here Comes My Baby." This is also kind of a reluctant skip. I had to skip something. Uh, Cat Stevens wrote this song kind of famously and it's, it's a good song, but you know, I've better ones, So I'm skipping it. Okay. That leads us to you for number 22 Alfie by Dionne Warwick. And I was really surprised to find out that this wasn't the original version. Um, the song obviously was written for the movie Alfie by, uh, Bert Backrack and Hal David, and they initially wanted Warwick to sing it, um, but the studio insisted that they hire a British singer to song, uh, sing the song um, because it was being filmed in London and it would make more sense. So they hired Scylla Black to do it instead, and her version appeared over the closing credits of the movie, um, but it wasn't included on the soundtrack album in the U.K., But when it came to time to release the album in the U S they decided to include the track, but um, since Scylla Black wasn't really very well known in the U S they decided to get Cher to record it. Um, Cher was on a label that was owned by Paramount. So promoting one of their artists and Cher's version was actually a minor hit. Um, made it to number 32. Um, But by the time that Warwick got around to recording her version, which was only like a a year later, um, there had already been 42 covers of the song, um, including a version by her own sister, Dee Dee Warwick. And she didn't really want to record the song because there had been so many covers of it. And it was kind of the last song recorded for her album, that came out before this, and it was released as a B-side, but it ended up becoming a flip-side hit after she performed the song on the Oscars in 67. And um, I went back and listened to the Scylla Black and the Cher versions, and um, Dion definitely had the superior version. Um, Scylla's is almost a Julie Andrews-type thing. And share is, I mean, it just is just share, <laughs> just right. just kind of a bland share interpretation of the song. But um, decent song. I mean, it probably one of Dion's signature songs, I guess. So, you ever seen the movie Alfie? I've only seen like bits and pieces of it. I, I mean, I know I'm... it's just about. Michael Caine being a womanizer who, like, reassesses his life. Yeah, kind of. So. I mean, but it's darker than that. I mean, it's it's actually pretty... It, it's... I, I'm kind of surprised that, like, Michael Caine... Not, not Michael Caine himself, but, like, that character seems like kind of an iconic character of, like, the swing 60s, London, you know, um, Carnaby Street, and all that shit. Um, I don't know why, because... That movie is pretty heavy, relatively heavy in tone, and, and he's kind of a dick, basically. So um, he has a little bit of an epiphany towards the end of the movie after there's an abortion scene in it, which made it pretty controversial at the time. But um, it's an interesting movie. It's not necessarily like if you're expecting a swinging guy, you know, hanging out in the clubs and, you know, bringing home birds and whatnot. It's not really, I mean, there's an element of that to it, but it's not really like that. It's it's different. Right. Not Austin Powers, I'll put it that way. Not even close. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I was thinking of actually doing that entry in like a Michael Caine voice, but um, that probably would have been terrible. I? I? I like Michael Caine. <laughs> Michael Caine is a good fit. I love Michael Caine. <laughs> right. but. Anyway, let's move on to 21 here, which is Mama's and the Papas with uh, Creaky Alley. Creek Alley, dude. But uh, okay. this features something very cool. 60s flute, Matt. 60s yep. flute. Yep. We talk about 80s sax, 70s sax. Once in a while, you get 60s sax, mostly on like Motown songs. This has 60s flute, which was... Definitely a trope of sunshine pop without a doubt, but this song maybe more so than, than most. Um, there's actually two versions of this, which I didn't know um, until I researched this a little bit, but this, the version they released as a single, which you don't hear anymore um, has horns in it, which they're not like heavy in the mix or anything like that, but I can understand why they stripped them out um, because they, they kind of make the song a little bit too busy, but um you know like a couple songs i didn't realize until this week that december 1963 for, by the four seasons there was a totally different single version that i probably haven't heard since the mid 70s but anyway there's a totally different single version of this song but basically it's an autobiographical song um about the history of the mamas and the papas to that point which didn't have much history left they broke up uh within a year after this but um I don't know if you like self referral it's like it's like it's not who didn't start the fire of Sunshine Pop, but um it is it makes a lot it drops a lot of names in it, you know, yeah, definitely basically yeah. drops names from the folk scene and the Sunshine Pop scene, which kind of converged a little bit, I guess, but so it's not one of my favorite songs by the Mamas and the Papas, but it is it was a big hit, right. Yeah, I mean, it basically mentions every single person who they were in a band with at some point. They should have <laughs> mentioned um, Napoleon the 14th while they were at it. <laughs> just for fun. He, just he, just he for was the fifth it. mama and papa. He was. <laughs> the mamas and the papas had some issues at this point because Denny Doherty uh, had an affair with Michelle Phillips. She got fired from the band briefly. There was all kinds of drama going on at this stage of the Mamas and the Papas too. So actually right. that happened yep. before this, but uh it was still the ramifications of that were ongoing. So there's a lot of there's a lot of yep. uh, morality issues with some of the members of the Mamas and the Papas both during their time and and, and after. So mostly Yeah, definitely pretty familiar <laughs> with some of those stories, but so But that also leads me into my long-distance dedication. And I'm going to keep this on the Sunshine Pop theme, Matt. And I'm going to roll it with, um, although I think this this band may show up. I could be wrong about this, but later on. But anyway, I'm going with, at number 81 this week, was Mercy, Mercy, Mercy by the Buckinghams. And first of all, I watched a clip of this. Um, By now, we're to the point. The other thing that's kind of, I think, a little bit, iconic about the sunshine pop bands is that they started appearing on tv right around the time that most networks went to color so right really see the first color footage of tv shows with the sunshine pop bands you know like the association and um the mamas and the papas the turtles and all that um and of course because color tv was new at that point they really overdid it with the color i mean they they all the elaborate stages that they had behind the band and all that were very colorful. Um, you know, the summer of love itself is kind of associated with, you know, bright colors and all that stuff. But the funny thing about this is is they were on the um on this the day after this chart came out, June 18th, 1967, they were on the Smothers Brothers comedy hour and they played this song and they played Don't You Care, one of their other hits. And in the background, their set was a bunch of stanchions, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe them, that, that had Union Jacks all over them, which is hilarious because um, the Buckinghams were from Chicago. So, um, yeah, yeah, but it, maybe it's not so hilarious and not so much of a coincidence because they have been a band that have been around, they, they formed in the early 60s and struggled for a few years and they basically adopted the name the Buckinghams. As a marketing idea because um, one of their producers or a DJ in Chicago told them, hey, it sounds vaguely British and it might help you out. So they they picked the Buckinghams and they actually named themselves after the Buckingham Fountain in Chicago. Um, But it does sound British and it worked because the Smothers Brothers comedy people thought they were British or played off that image. Um, (laughs) But if you heard the, the Buckinghams had a very short period of hit making and it basically lasted a year um and this song would have been it's on its way up the chart and this song's interesting too because um it's one of the very few songs where it hit as an instrumental first and then somebody added lyrics to it and it hit again so um within like a couple months before this came out cannonball adderley's version uh instrumental version off of a quote-unquote live album which wasn't really live um was a big hit around the turn of 66 early 67 um and it was a straight-up jazz instrumental joe uh Zollenhall uh played world it's her electric piano on it very famously it's really cool um and the only other song i can think of where they added words to an instrumental came later on in the 60s with uh, grazing in the grass which right. was a hugh masekela song uh, instrumental song and then um Was turned into a, um, um, you know, kind of an Afro soul song by, um, um, by fuck, who the hell was it? Friends of Distinction. Friends of Distinction. I'm getting old and forgetful, but um, (laughs) anyway, so it's it's interesting that the Buckingham's decided to do that. But they were, I, I kind of dig the Buckingham's. They were, they were an interesting sunshine pop group. They, you know, they did things like mercy mercy where they kept the electric piano in it, even though they sang over the top of it. Um, They sound a little bit like a nascent version of Chicago. And the reason that is not only that they're from Chicago, but James William Garcia, who is kind of the famous impresario for Chicago uh, had them first. So if you ever think they sound similar, that's probably a big reason why. So anyway, I'm dedicating this to lack of truth in advertising weird mashups And, you know, pretty decent, enjoyable sunshine pop band. So I've always, I don't know why I've always had a soft spot for the Buckinghams. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is a decent song. I mean, most of their songs are pretty decent. Yeah, Yeah. I'll reference them again later. But, so that's my dedication for this week. Okay, all right. All right, continuing on, Matt, for you, number 20 is San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair by Scott McKenzie. Yes, and this was essentially an ad for the Monterey Pop Festival, uh, which was being held the exact same weekend that this chart was released. And um, it was written by John Phillips, who we just mentioned a little bit ago, and he was one of the organizers of the, of the festival. Um, he was putting it together with Lou Adler, who is the mama's and the papa's manager, and Um, Beatles, Birds publicist Derek Taylor and it was intended to be the rock and pop answer to uh, the long-running Monterey Jazz Festival and their goal was to um, validate rock as an art form instead of it just being seen as teeny bopper crap and Phillips... I still see it as teeny bopper crap. Yeah, I don't either, but that's what his goal was. I mean, that's not me saying that, but um, part of the reason that he wrote this song was that um, it was to pacify the San Francisco groups who are, he was trying to um, get to play at the show. I mean, obviously Monterey is probably about two hours away from San Francisco, but since it was like in Northern Cal- California, kind of in the territory of the San Francisco scene, um, they were kind of pissed off that John Phillips was coming to their era and starting a festival. So he decided to write a song that basically name-checked San Francisco. And it worked because all the big San Francisco bands did end up playing um, Monterey of the Dead were there, Jefferson Airplane... Um, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quicksilver, Messenger Service, and so on. But it also kind of ended up backfiring because um, obviously this was a huge hit and people from across the country are hearing all about how great San Francisco is. So um, they flooded the Haight-Ashbury area and basically ruined the scene. So, um, But... Um, Phillips claimed that he wrote the song in about 20 minutes and he gave it to Scott Mackenzie, who was a former bandmate of his in The Journeyman which I don't think he was mentioned in Creek Alley at all but um, he did perform the song at the festival as part of the Mamas and Papas set uh, but it wasn't included in the finished film for the Monterey Pop Festival Um, his performance wasn't anyway the song was um, the song kind of plays over a montage of people coming to the fairgrounds and various celebrities milling around um, like Jimi Hendrix and Brian Jones and stuff like that but um, (laughs) I did actually look to find his performance, which was kind of included as a bonus for the DVD version. And um, he's dressed in like a white caftan. He has like a perm and kind of like a porn star mustache. I mean, he looks pretty ridiculous to tell you the truth, but probably looked cool in 1967. Yeah. But well, I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, this is a song that was probably it's, was intended from the beginning to capture a moment and for that reason it sounds dated like to my ears like i've never really been a big fan of this song because i wasn't there and i didn't experience it but it's like kind of the, the the other trapping of writing a song like that is that it traps you in a in a moment so it'd be like my generation when i graduated high school like if i wrote compton be sure to you know, come strapped with a gat or something like that. I mean, (laughs) you know, it just doesn't sound, you know, to my ears, it sounds, and plus it's been appropriated as the summer of love. And then the first song you hear is this one, of course, um, which was sort of, I guess, intent, but um, it probably became pretty anachronistic pretty quick. Um, Yeah. And one thing I'd like to point out is that the reason that probably nobody remembers his performance at the festival is that, um, Scott and the Mamas and Papas came out immediately after Jimi Hendrix set at Monterey Pop, which that is which is what pretty much everybody remembers about the Monterey Pop Festival. That, Janis Joplin, and the Who, and right. Otis Redding, too. But, I mean, nobody really remembers the Mamas and Papas being there, even though they were the ones who actually put the festival together. So. Yeah. But um, he only had one more top 40 hit after this. But he did have a hand in writing a pretty big hit in the 80s. Um, he t- teamed up with Mike Love and Terry Melcher to write Kokomo. So... Yep. Kokomo. The best written song of all time. I- exactly. Exactly. And it also, like San Francisco, it's it's... Like, brought people to Kokomo, Indiana. Right, the summer (laughs) of love in 88, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, let's go on to 19 here, which is John and Robin and the in-crowd with Do It Again a little bit slower. Well, we're we're dealing with a one-hit wonder here, and it's decent. I mean, the vocals, kind of like Harper's Bazaar earlier, are very lighter-than-air type stuff. Um, but it works because the lyrics trade off and John is a guy, Robin's a girl and has good interplay. Obviously a love song in that sense has cool piano breaks in it too, that they kind of ripped off from cool jerk, um, but they sound cool. They're used well in the song. Probably the most interesting thing about this group is that uh, John in the group, John Abnor uh, had some pretty big problems later in life. He actually murdered his girlfriend in 1980. <laughs> he had some uh, mental health issues and, um most i i I mean this group is so obscure i found very little of anything that was pretty you know would be considered legitimate uh literature on this but he definitely did it i found a court case about it so that that isn't made up but um he uh he he died in prison i guess in the 80s but um so kind of a one-hit wonder gone wrong there but um, yeah (laughs) but definitely definitely uh another sunshine pop song and uh, you know, kind of a, you know, love song that, uh, you know, it's pleasant, like a lot of sunshine pop. So, but right, moving on for you, number 18 is New York mining disaster, 1941 by the Bee Gees. And this was their first chart hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, it's about two miners trapped underground. And one of the miners is trying to show the other a picture of his wife and it's sort of implied that they aren't going to make it out alive. And it was inspired by the Aberfan disaster in Wales, which happened about a year before this. Um, coal Slag ended up landsliding into a town and killed about 150. 150- it's the but... summer of love. It's pleasant stuff like that, that made the summer of love. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's almost a cappella, and the verses and the rest of the group joins in on the choruses. I'm um, kind of interesting that way, but at the time, um, a lot of people speculated that this was the Beatles um, or that it was either the Beatles or they ghost wrote the track. And the reason for that was uh, the BJ's were, signed to brian epstein's management company and when they released the promo for this um, the only information on the label was um the name of brian epstein's company and um it came with a note saying that it was by a british group whose name starts with a b so obviously that led a lot of people to speculate that it was the beatles and Robin Gibb actually does sound quite a bit like John Lennon on the track, too. I thought that also kind of... um, I thought it was (laughs) Bananarama. Yes, yes. It starts with a B. Yep, yep. Um, (laughs) um, the The Beatles were... I mean, the Bee Gees were flattered by... The comparison, but they're kind of insulted by the ghostwriting comp- comparisons or or the ghostwriting allegations. Actually, but the Beatles were actually fans of the song. Um, they really liked it and actually went out to seek out the Bee Gees to tell them how much they liked it. And also, supposedly, it inspired "Space Oddity" by um, David Bowie. Um, also, I mean. Moving the mine miner trapped into the mine to outer space. It's part of the disaster genre of rock and roll. It was like right in line with movies. You get, you, you can draw a line from this all the way to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because nothing sells records like people dying and tragedy. That that's true. That's true. Gold record, gold is what that is.
1: Yeah. You know the Bee Gees yeah.
0: didn't really do a good job. I mean, if they were annoyed by being compared with the beatles it's and which they were for most of their at least especially the early part of their career they didn't really do a great job of fighting it off i mean they fucking played the beatles in the Sgt. pepper movie so you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean yeah, that's true i don't know whether they embraced it or they just did it for cash or what but they didn't do such a hot job of shaking off that tag yeah exactly <laughs> At, at least in this, at least definitely in their early era, they definitely were kind of beatles Oh, yeah, no question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of bands were. Right. Yeah. But moving on to 17 here for you, um, The Fifth Estate with Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. Skip, dopey ass novelty song, not worth my time, nor yours. So... <laughs> If This is the actual... Is this the actual Ding Dong the Witch is Dead from Wizard of Oz? Um, it's a cover of it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Stupid. But anyway, number 16 for you is Him or Me, What's It Gonna Be by Paul Revere and the Raiders. And I, w- I was really surprised by this song. Um, it's also very Beatles-esque. It's kind of... um. Their take on like a rubber Soul, revolver era Beatles song, and at first I thought that Mark Lindsay, the regular vocalist, wasn't singing here, but he is. He is, but he's imitating Paul McCartney a little bit, and um, I mean, actually does a pretty good job of imitating McCartney on here. But this is this is really good, and I was thinking about all the times that i heard like kicks or hungry over the years when i could have heard this instead yeah um so i, I gotta um blame that on like oldies radios oldies radio programmers yeah you know when you do these <laughs> starts oldies ra- radio programmers pretty much suck because there are some good songs that they skip and i don't know why um probably because listeners of oldie stations are just like classic rock they're like programmed into like 20 songs but um you know there's some good songs on this chart that i if i've ever heard them on an oldie station like maybe once or twice i mean you know they're it's you know like a lot of radio it's fucked up right yeah exactly but i mean think of all the time i mean I've heard "Kicks" probably like five hundred times in my life. I mean, just like one or two times. If they could have played this song, it would have been great. Yeah, but they didn't. No, they kept but... on "Kicks." Yeah, and "Kicks" is okay, but it's like you know, I don't need to hear that five. That's that's in my list of songs I never need to hear again as long as I live. Right, that that, that aren't bad. I mean, you know, it's not a bad song, but I've heard it so many times. Um, you know it's like, okay, enough. I've, like, absorbed as as much as I can. Right. Yeah, exactly. But um, while this song was out on the charts, um, the band kind of had a major shake-up in their lineup. Um, the bassist, the guitarist, and the drummer all decided to leave the band at once, and um, they are upset about being replaced by the racking crew on the records, which... I'm assuming the Wrecking Crew played on this, too. And they weren't really thrilled about the direction that the band was going in. They wanted to um, play serious music. (laughs) Um, But they ended up forming a band called The Brotherhood together. And um, I listened to some of their tracks, and they sound exactly like Paul Revere and the Raiders. So they weren't really branching out too much. But um, I was also kind of glad that I listened to the song before I like, sought out any of like clips of performances of the song because um, their stage act was so hokey it probably would have <laughs> ruined it for me. Yeah. Um, they're still wearing the Revolutionary War outfits and they kind of had like synchronized dance steps and um, Lindsay and Paul Revere are kind of like hamming it up the entire time um just really cheesy and also Lindsay had like a stupid ponytail that was i guess supposed to look like a powdered wig nice so... when i was a kid i'd hear paul revere and the raiders and i thought it was the football team and some guy <laughs> <laughs> that's, kind of, that's what i thought but it, it would have been raiders. funny if these guy. it would have been funny if these guys did guys did the we wear the silver we wear the black oh that would have been awesome they should have done it or <laughs> if the oakland raiders had done indian reservation in the 70s that would have been cool as well yes yes yep we could have and stabler just taking a drag off a cigarette and singing the song that would have been badass <laughs> right right <laughs> But anyway, let's move on to 15 here, which is the Grassroots with Let's Live for Today. I learned something about this song that I never would have guessed, but this song is in the tradition of songs, several songs from the early 80s, in, like Gloria is the best known example, in that it was an originally a hit in Italy with completely different lyrics, uh, but the same basically the same music. And it made its way over to the United States via Britain. Britain got a hold of the Italian song first. They rewrote, they added English lyrics to it and probably formed the nascent version of the Let's Live For Today that people know by the grassroots. Well, then that somehow passed to a record executive in America for Dunhill Records, which is who the grassroots recorded for. And the grassroots ended up recording it. And this was uh, basically their first hit and still their, their, of all their hits, their earliest known one. And it's not I I it's not one of my favorite it's it's probably their most substantial song in terms of like it's actually a band singing instead of some of their later ones, which basically sound like, you know, the wrecking crew um recording over some vocals. Um mm-hmm. and it was very popular among Vietnam war uh soldiers because it kind of captured the way that they were thinking over in Vietnam, which was of course ramping up big time in sixty seven and it's not one of my favorite grassroots songs, but, um, you know, but it was the one that basically allowed whomever was in the grassroots at various points to have a career as the grassroots later on. But, you know, it occurred to me today, I was listening to one of these Sunshine Pop songs on my Spotify and I'd sought it out. So it wasn't part of a playlist. So if, as you probably know, if you're on Spotify, if you play a song it it'll pick songs after that on its own. And yeah. So I was listening to um, one of the songs that will come up later, and then several of the grassroots later songs came up, like Temptation Eyes and, um, 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 you know, those type of songs. They were sunshine pop of a different kind in the early 70s, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, I could. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about there. Yeah. Yeah. That's my only point okay so very uh i I blew everybody's minds with that so anyway (laughs) number 14 for you is seven rooms of gloom by the four tops see this is a powerhouse levi stubbs vocal um this and bernadette which is off of the same album are probably his best performances as far as i'm concerned and actually that album was the very last album that I bought before the pandemic started so really but um but there's there's almost a spooky ghost-like quality to the background vocals which is kind of cool and it employs the mid-60s Motown trick of pairing up almost like a driving frantic rhythm um to a song in a minor key so kind of like an interesting contrast there and it's slightly Baroque influenced. I mean, that was broke pop was kind of also going on at the same time. So there's harpsichord all over this. Yes. There's harpsichord is, that shows up on some of my songs later. Right. And one thing that I was surprised is that there was actually a video for this song. And, um, the video has the four tops standing in an empty house and they're just kind of moping and occasionally you see a shadow of a woman on the walls and eventually they notice the shadow on the walls and they get really scared. (laughs) And um, all the four tops are dressed like they just got off a golf course too, which I'm assuming they might have actually just got off the golf course and Barry Gordy, like, called him up and said that they had to make a video. This sounds like the worst <laughs> Scooby-Doo episode of all time. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Were they on it's... Scooby-Doo? Remember Scooby-Doo in their, like, we saw them in reruns, but in the early 70s, they had guest stars on Scooby-Doo? I, they, they might have been. Yeah, I, I think they might have been. We might have to look that up because I, I'm, maybe, it, I don't know. It might have been be cool if it was i hope they were right but this was I, I was also surprised to find out that pat benatar covered this and um her version is like abysmal too it's horrible yeah i can't do so. that at all i have to pick out my favorite four top song for my little facebook project so i've been uh-huh. i've been thinking about the four tops of late so hmm I think would, we, would you consider this one or no, it would be okay, probably Bernadette or something about you, or maybe, um, no, nah, probably just be those two. I like their early 70s stuff too, but I don't know that any of that beats those two, so right, yeah. But those are, I mean, those are two decent picks, I guess. So fine, I don't really give a shit what you think. <laughs> well, i was complimenting him i know and i'm shooting you down because i'm that kind of weird person <laughs> okay okay but anyway let's go to 13 here which is come on down to my boat by every mother's son this has a lot of the elements i like about 60 songs does it have trash organ it does does it have sort of garagey guitar in it that's frankly not very good guitar but it it drives a song it does um the lyrics are beyond stupid i mean it's about it's about a girl on a boat and they're making an illusion like she needs to get off the boat and get with them but the lyrics are stupid but it's not really about the lyrics it's about the vibe of the song um has clapped choruses and stuff like that i mean this isn't really sunshine pop so much as it so much as it's kind of proto bubblegum and kind of yeah definitely Kind of garage too, like light garage, like not heavy garage, but um, so that makes it kind of, you know, kind of a fun song. So another oldie staple for sure, but um, definitely, yeah, you know, but you know, it's an enjoyable song kind of there's, I think you have a song later I would put in the same category that's just kind of good, trashy, fun 60s music, I guess is how I would categorize this. Yeah. But it's just a weird to come on down to my boat. That's just weird. <laughs> oh no. know. There's a lot of boats. Yeah, sixty songs. Uh, you got, um, you know, there's a lot of boats and sixty songs. There's a lot of boat imagery, <laughs> right? Yeah, or, or or dockside imagery, like sitting on the dock of the bay. So yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Boats, boats, boats. We got boats. To Zocco Zocco anyway, <laughs> number 12 for you is sunday will never be the same by spanking our gang and this band is actually from a town that you get to visit quite a bit for work uh-oh um, well, um let me try to guess um cedar falls iowa nope nope okay never mind go ahead and tell me um, they're from Blono oh, Bloomington, Illinois. Wow. I'm gonna have to go seek out all their haunts when I'm up there next time. <laughs> Let's see. And this is Sunshine Pop 2, and uh the band gets their name from lead singer Elaine McFarlane's nickname. And obviously Elaine McFarlane, George Spanky McFarlane, and from that you get the R gang
1: so spanky
0: and our gang dumb but um this song was written by terry cashman who's um best known for talking baseball no god it's getting worse it's getting worse (laughs) you're going from the little rascals to talking baseball (laughs) yes and it it, it gets better too oh god Uh, the guy he wrote it for or the guy he wrote it with gene pastilli was an original member of the Manhattan Transfer. Oh my gosh. This is getting rough. <laughs> it's getting rough. <laughs> See, but... Um, they originally tried to give this song to the Mamas and the Papas and the Left Bank. And both of those bands ended up turning it down. <laughs> but Because both of those bands um... have good taste. <laughs> well, I mean... This song would have worked for both of them, yeah, I think. It, I, I mean, it kind it, of works for both of their sounds. Yeah, it does. But anyway, it, it ended up filtering down to Spanky and our gang, and um, they added the intro to it, which is the... ba da 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 That was their idea. That wasn't in the original song. And it's borrowed from the hymn Gloria, so... But um the song's been used in like a ton of ads over the years, just like anything that mentions Sundays. Like I'm almost a hundred percent sure that NFL Networks used it. And it was also used in a Plymouth ad campaign that featured um Patula Clark with different lyrics. Um, instead of Sunday will never be the same, it's just see what Plymouth's doing now. The sucking ass. <laughs> Plymouth. That's one American yeah. car brand that deserved to die. Without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Plymouth. I mean, yeah, but um, they only had a couple hits after this and that is because um, the guy who, like the leader of the band and the guy who arranged all their songs um, died because of Carbon monoxide poisoning from a faulty heater about a year after this. Huh. So they ended up breaking up because of that. And uh, McFarlane actually ended up in the Mamas and the Papas, um, the reunited version of the Mamas and the Papas in the 80s, which was just basically John Phillips and Denny Doherty. And I think Mackenzie Phillips replaced her stepmom yeah in it, but yeah <laughs> uh, talking baseball man that's one that people you had to like be of a certain time that song was fucking ubiquitous in the early 80s and it is like one of the worst examples of baby boomer nostalgia like you you don't hear that song very often anymore but and like maybe the first time i heard it i was like oh okay that's kind of neat and then but it's like the most milk toast bullshit crap song ever ever recorded
1: and yeah, I, love I, I think
0: that, I, I'm nostalgic yeah. for baseball, and I hate that song. It's just terrible, right? And I think people closer to my age would remember the Simpsons kind of spoof of it more than the original Probably. version. Yeah, because I mean, it really yeah, kind of disappeared. softball. Yeah, it kind of disappeared yeah. out of the zeitgeist not too, you know, not too long after the mid '80s, but um, ugh, just gives <laughs> gives me the willies. but anyway um let's let's move on to number 11 here which is frankie valley with can't take my eyes off of you well like i mentioned earlier um the earlier four seasons featuring the sound of frankie valley song come on marianne was released around the same time that frankie valley recorded a sort of solo album which was actually backed by the four seasons so it was kind of confusing that's why they titled that Come On Marianne with that really long, ridiculous artist title. But this was technically Frankie Valli's solo. And it doesn't sound all to you know, if you heard this and you didn't know that there was a distinction between solo and the four seasons, you never would make the distinction because it sounds like the four seasons, basically, because it basically is. Um, but this song is cool. I mean, I think this is kind of like a proto sophista pop song because... The arrangement of this song is really classy. I mean, you've got that cool kind of loungy 60s vibraphone thing going. You got horns and strings. You got the stomped percussion, which kind of calls back Motown, sort of, I guess. And it, but it's all in perfect balance. And, of course, Frankie Valley's singing it, so that's going to be classy uh, in its own right. And it all, it all works. It comes together, and it was a huge hit, obviously, and still well played today. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, one of, one of the better, if you count it as a four season song, it's probably not my favorite one from the sixties, but it's right there. It's cool. Yeah, it is. Like you you could see this being played in the Copa or something like that, but yeah, you also wouldn't be like considered uncool if you played it in your car radio or something. I mean, it's just a, it's just kind of a timeless, cool song. See, well, the thing that sticks out with, for me about this is that it was used in the Deer Hunter. Um, after, like, the hunting trip before um, the guys go off to Vietnam, they have kind of a sing-along to this at the bar. Yeah. how is so, has Corsese had to have used this song at some point? This is, like, right up his alley. I, I'm pretty sure he has. A, I He might have used it in Goodfellas. Yeah, I don't know. I don't if if he did, I don't remember. But, um, you know, the four seasons are definitely in Scorsese land, I think. Although now that I think about it, I can't think of many, though, like that jump right to mind. So maybe I'm not thinking of that correctly. But so but that style <laughs> music, I mean, that Facebook thing I was talking about, I did the four seasons the other day. They really are unique among the 60s pop groups because they really kind of endured with their own sound. They were started off as doo but they didn't necessarily stay doo but they still had those kind of roots in it. And, you know, really out, you know, they outlasted the British invasion and um, a lot of other stuff that knocked similar bands out of the box. So they, they had an interesting career. Yeah. 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 They definitely did. So anyway, moving on for you, Matt, number 10 is Mirage by Tommy James and the Shondells. Let's see. And this song is actually, I think we're alone now with the chord, proge- uh, chord progression played in reverse. And somehow it's it ends up being a better song than um, I Think We're Alone Now. And how this happened was they were um, in the sessions recording I Think We're Alone Now and the producer accidentally hit... Um, reverse when he was playing it back and the band thought that it sounded cool. So they just decided to um, create a song with that core, proge- forget uh, with that core progression. And it's actually the second instance I can think of where um, a playback mishap ended up turning into a hit in the sixties. The other um, was Manfred Mann's cover of um The Mighty Quinn which happened because they accidentally played Bob Dylan's demo too fast so they played it at a quicker tempo. Yeah. But um in the song there's actually at one point kind of like a tape running backwards sound effect which might be kind of like a wink at its origins. But um like I mentioned it's it's like, I think we're alone now, but it is a little bit better. The, the baseline is a little bit more prominent. It's a little bit harder driving and, um, really great, really great song. I've, I've always really liked this one. I don't think I've ever even heard it. I'm going to have to go listen to it, but there's a lot of songs, right. though that, you know, have memorable parts or were recorded entirely because of mistakes. I mean, um, one song I was looking at, it's not on this chart, but I saw her again by the Mamas and the Papas, the part at the end where Denny Doherty jumps in, he, he starts the the chorus where he goes, I saw her, and then he pauses. That was a mistake. Yeah. They couldn't get that off yeah. the master tape, so they Lou Adler thought it was cool, and he kept it, and it is cool. It's, it sounds like they're improvising. Um, Led Zeppelin's Misty Mountain Hop has a drum break in it that was a mistake, but it makes the song sound cool and looser. Um, mm mm-hmm. There's there's several songs like that where they just kind of happen by complete accident. And Louis Louie Louis has another mistake like that too. Yeah. There's several examples of that. And um, you know, it's it's interesting how, you know, cool stuff can come out of stuff that was never intended in the first place. So Right. Yeah. And um another um Kind of weird fact about this is that it has like a super obscure early synthesizer on it, um, called an Andia line, which was actually used on both songs. But um, supposedly there's only like a dozen of them that still exist. But somehow it ended up on two hits in 1967 and was never really used again. But but yeah, that's the the keyboard sound on this. So. Okay, but anyway, um, let's go on to number nine here, which is the happenings with "I Got Rhythm." Matt, this is the George Gershwin sunshine pop mashup you've been waiting for, but um, that's <laughs> what it is. This is the "I Got Rhythm" that George Gershwin wrote, and this is kind of the most of these sunshine pop, pop songs I like a lot. This is an exception. This song's pretty lousy honestly and it's it 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 sounds dated a lot of the sunshine pop songs there's a difference between being dated and being of an era like the great songs from this period are timeless and they're of an era like you know they're from the late 60s this is dated which is the difference in that is is that it's not timeless and it sounds like in a pejorative sense it's from an era so um not a good one it was a big hit for the happenings but um nah not that great but okay anyway for you number eight is all i need by the temptations and this is late period david ruffin temptation single um he ended up being fired from the band almost exactly a year after this chart and the song's decent but it's not really memorable um it w- it was actually left off of their greatest hits album that covers this era um which leads me to believe that them and motown didn't really think that much of the song yeah but it, it was actually was as big of a hit as i know I'm losing you which was off of the same album and is far better known but um but yeah i mean it's um I mean it's it's okay i guess but it's pretty just pretty kind cool. of there yeah yeah but anyway number seven for you is the association with wendy the greatest of all sunshine pop songs matt i'm declaring it i'm going up on top of sunshine mountain and i'm yelling at them <laughs> this is the best sunshine pop song ever recorded i've always loved this song Heard it when I was a little kid, either on the radio. We had association, association records at home, so I may have heard it there, too. Um, this is my favorite Sunshine Pop song and one of my favorite pop songs, period, of all time. Um, I made a Mount Rushmore of Sunshine Pop songs. And so this is on okay. it. Happy Together by the Turtles is on it. Um, I Saw Her Again by the Mamas and the Papas is on it. And Hey Baby by the Buckinghams is my Mount Rushmore of Sunshine Pop. And then the, the Crazy Horse Monument would be um, You Didn't Have to Be So Nice by the Love and Spoonful. So that'd be my Sunshine Pop, Mount Rushmore, and then Extra. So um, this song has everything you'd want in a Sunshine Pop song. It has great drums, the bass is pretty, you know, the whole song, the whole hook of the song is on a bass line. Um, has harpsichord in among many other things. And this song is why I think Sunshine Pop, which is a subgenre, deserves a little bit more respect because I think the inference that's kind of been put on Sunshine Pop since the late 60s is that it came before rock got quote-unquote serious, you know, with the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, of course, as you mentioned earlier on, came not too long after this. And then that really changed rock and roll. I mean, there's no de- denying that. But I think, sunshine pop kind of suffers from that because it's viewed as like the next, you know, it's viewed as the evolution of, or it's viewed as what a part of the evolution, but not what it evolved into, which means it sort of gets put in a box a little bit in terms of what it is. And I don't know. I mean, you go listen to these sunshine pop songs, they're very musically sophisticated and they have really cool arrangements. They're really pretty amazing productions. When you, when you listen to them, they're just not, very pretentious or you know they're they're tied to lyrics that are pleasant and you know some would consider to be soft pop and all that um you know and the songs are really pleasant and fun to listen to so i think it's a genre that deserves a lot more respect than it gets um yeah yeah, definitely windy of course um which is just super catchy i mean it's just you know everybody knows this song is you know um super famous eventually got up to number one but Um, But of course, later on, it was used as the cold open to the greatest TV episode of all time, (laughs) which is half measures from Breaking Bad. And it was used as a montage for a prostitute named Wendy in the show and doing her job as probably the the censored way to put it. But um, but that is the best TV episode I've ever seen in my life by any TV show ever. So. (laughs) <laughs> the fact that that song is in it helped make it one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Cause it was so clever the way Vince Gilligan used that. But um, anyway, this is one of my all time favorites. This to me is sunshine pop. If you want to know what sunshine pop is, this song is it. So what's on your yeah, mind? Did you do a Mount Rushmore of sunshine pop? Let's see. Well, I, I, when you asked me about that, I was thinking more of like the artists. But for songs, I I mean, Feeling Groovy by Simon and Garfunkel sticks out to me as, like, yeah. the ultimate, like, sunshine pop song. Um, I Saw Her Again, like you mentioned, by the Mamas and Papas. That's another great one there. Um, might not go with Windy. Might go with um, Never My Love, if that counts. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, little, I think anything by the kind of, association other than maybe eh, I think pretty much everything by the association counts right and maybe I mean maybe something like Pet Sounds era Beach Boys maybe like Wouldn't It Be Nice might fall in there yeah possibly. that's probably the closest they're, they're a big influence on sunshine pop but that's probably the closest they ever got to making a sunshine pop song because most of their songs were not necessarily... Sunsh- I mean, they didn't necessarily have the same tropes as Sunshine Pop did, I guess. But, but that, one, right. that one comes pretty close. I would agree with you there. Maybe Good Vibrations, too. See, I don't know. I, I think that goes a little... That's a little beyond the pale of Sunshine Pop. Although it, it also trades in some of the same themes, I guess. But, so... Right. Anyway, moving on. Number six for you is Little Bit of Soul by The Music Explosion. Well, we have Bubblegum by Casanet's Cats here. and unlike most of the bands in the Casanet's Cats um, stable like 1910 Fruit Gum Company, Crazy Elephant, or um, my personal favorite, um, the St. Louis Invisible Marching Band. (laughs) <laughs> These guys started out as an actual band. Um, they're from Mansfield, Ohio. Um, their original name was The Chosen Few. And they kind of got hooked up with Cassinette's Cats through a um, local connection through New York. And this was Cassinette's Cats's only second attempt as record producers. They were um, primarily concert promoters before this. And it, it's a typical Nuggets, low-file style production. It sounds like it was literally recorded in a garage. And um, it's a co- it's actually a cover, too. Um, the cover was, the original was by a British band called the Little Darlings. And um, it was written by a couple guys who were in the Ivy League who were probably best known for doing the background vocals on I Can't Explain But Who. version is It doesn't have the organ that this version does. But um, really great bubblegum song. And um, Kasanitz kind of promoted the single by just kind of taking the record to every radio station that he could find and just passing him a single personally, and it ended up working out because this did go all the way up to number two. And without it, we wouldn't have had Gimme Gimme Good Lovin', Indian Giver, or 1, 2, 3 Red Light. We um, wouldn't want to live in a world without any of those songs. And also, we wouldn't have "Fuck Shot" by Two Life <laughs> Crew because they sampled this. I knew somebody song. did. You know, I had my <laughs> I was fixated on Deeper Shade of Soul because of the soul, you know. Same song title, but that has nothing to do with Little Bit of Soul at all. So, right, Deeper Shade of Soul, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Urban Dance Squad making an unexpected appearance in a 1967 countdown episode. Yeah, I'm assuming that sampled something from this era. It's, too. I looked I mean, it, I'm actually looking it up right now, it sampled a Deeper Shade of Soul, which is a different 60s obscure song. Okay. So you have okay. to go. Well, you'll have to do some homework and go listen to that or me too. So. Okay. But anyway, number 5 for you is Jefferson Airplane with um Somebody to Love. Well, This is really the only so-called Summer of Love song I had and um you know, I guess it kind of embodies the era, but I've never been a big fan of this song to be perfectly honest. I don't know. I I'm not a big fan of Jefferson Airplane generally anyway, but It's okay. I mean, I get why it was a big hit. It does sound more advanced, I suppose, than some of the other stuff on the chart. But White Rabbit, to me, is a much cooler song than this one is. Plus, this song, this is another song that's been beaten into the, like San Francisco has. It's been beaten in the ground as a cliche of the summer of love. I mean, I'll bet, I'll bet Grace Slick hates this song as much as I do. I, I can see that, yeah. Because she's like, <laughs> Grace Slick cracks me up she's like, when I turn whatever age it was, I, mean, I don't want to be up there dancing like an idiot on stage. I'm 60 years old for Christ's sake, which she's <laughs> much older than that now. But I remember reading a story about, like in the early 90s, like in Rolling Stone or something, where she said that she's like, I'm old. I don't need to be doing this shit. So, <laughs> but yeah. So, anyway, number four for you uh release me and let me love again by engelbert humperdinck yes easy listening nice and this is humperdinck's signature song um actually what this and yeah this and after the Lovin' are like the only two of his songs that i can even name after the Lovin' is the only one i can name <laughs> <laughs> but um Humperdinck isn't his real name, in case you're wondering. Um, His real name's Arthur Dorsey, and for the first decade of his career, he put out records under his regular name, but his producer suggested that he um, pick a stage name that would catch people's attention. So they decided to borrow the name Engelbert Humperdinck from um, a 19th century composer. And um, he's stuck with it ever since. And, well, after this became a big hit, I mean, obviously he was stuck with it. But the song was somewhat of a country standard before Humperdinck got his hands on it. Um, Ray Price, Kitty Wells all covered it in the 50s. Yep. And the song was just slightly adapted to fit the crooner style. Basically, they just swapped out um, the steel guitar... Um, with strings and ended up becoming a huge hit on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm assuming the world war II generation was still buying singles and this kind of like caught their ears, I guess, but it's kind of famous in the UK for keeping um, strawberry fields forever and Penny Lane" off of um, the number one position. And it was, you don't fuck with Engelbert Humperdinck. I mean, everybody knows that. Right, and it also spent a record fifty-six consecutive weeks on the charts over there. But, well, it was a hit in the UK. He was part of um, the weirdest double bill in history. Um, his opening act was the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Nice. That <laughs> the fans who showed up for that were uh, were, you know, very down with Jimi hendrix so yeah i i'm imagining just like a mass exodus of like Jimi hendrix fans after yeah. the reset yeah after the Lovin' has always cracked me up that just sounds like the most swarthy song ever and yet it's actually halfway listenable but yeah yeah you're right about that yeah it's not it's, it sounds like Ah, uh, never mind. I was gonna go some, to a dark place with that, but I'll skip it. So okay. But anyway, let's go to number three here, which is the Turtles with "She'd Rather Be with Me." This is my last sunshine pop song, and this was the Turtles' biggest hit in the UK. Which makes sense because this song sounds a lot like British invasion pop, more so than probably sunshine pop. I mean, I could see like the Dave Clark Five recording this um, in, a, in like a different arrangement, but. Uh, The Turtles among the sunshine pop bands are probably the closest link to British Invasion and sunshine pop. They kind of traded in both sounds. And um, this song, probably more so than any of them, really probably defines you know, it can be defined as either or. So, um, you know, I think it sounds I mean, if you didn't know any better, you might think this is like one of the lesser British Invasion groups. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it doesn't sound like this was the single after after Happy Together, but it's not. It's a different vocalist, and um, it doesn't sound at all like it doesn't. If you didn't know it was the Turtles, you wouldn't. You would never guess it was the Turtles. So right, yeah, still a cool song though. And the Turtles really, among their singles, never really had a bad song. I mean, they they put out pretty consistent stuff. So right, that leads us to number two for you, Matt, is Respect by Aretha Franklin. And this is probably one of the most famous songs of all time. Um, Everybody on Earth knows this song.
1: Um, I'd be very,
0: very surprised to meet somebody who hasn't heard this song. But it was originally written and performed by Otis Redding. Um, His version's a lot different than the Aretha version. It's pretty upbeat, horn-driven, kind of typical funky mid-60s sax or mid-60s stacks, I meant. Um, Aretha's version is a little bit more drawn out. Um, She swaps out the organ for piano and adds the female background singers who um, sing like, suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me, and just a little bit, just a little bit, which weren't in the original song. And she also added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T line, which wasn't in it. And obviously, there's a gender swap in it. And in otis' version, a husband's just basically asking his wife for respect. In Aretha's version, she's a little bit more forceful and she's demanding respect. Yep. So it adds a little bit of a feminist flair to it. And um, at the time, Otis actually um, kind of acknowledged that she did the superior version. Um, basically kind of joking, that woman stole my song. Yep, yep, that's a famous <laughs> quote, yep. He's right, yeah. though. he did do the better version. Right, and obviously it was a huge hit, went to number one and um, solidified her title as the Queen of Soul, which I didn't know this, but she actually um, had the title, the Queen of Soul, like three years before this, and she was actually crowned on stage by a DJ in Chicago as the Queen of Soul. So That's how I became the Queen of Soul, too. It was pretty cool. Yep, yep. You got to have the coronation. I know. It was, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. <laughs> but anyway, we're at number one here. Yeah, well, before we go on to that, I did want to say that's probably the best use of spelling in a song, too. It Especially is. the way she sings that—that that, you know the, the where the you know song kind of comes to it to an apex at the end. That's very powerful singing. But you know, oh yeah, definitely very, definitely, very clever. Whoever idea who who whomever idea that was, uh, that was uh, that was pretty pretty solid. But right, yeah, exactly. But we are at number one here. So we are. Here we go. Um, The Young Brett Rascals with Groovin. Well, most everybody knows this song. It's one of the most famous songs by the Rascals who are still calling themselves the Young Rascals at this point. It's just a cool chill song, you know? I mean, that's kind of the intent of it. Um, it sounds like they like kidnapped an urban city group, which is what the Rascals were, and like just took a trip to a state park for a day or something like that. They're just kind of chilling out, grooving on hanging out in the country and even has sound effects like that you know um the funny thing was you talk about things within songs that were an accident that helped make them what they are this is a song that wasn't originally going to be released as a single at all and um atlantic records who is who the rascals recorded for they didn't like it because it didn't have drums in it um they didn't think it would go anywhere so somehow new york disc jockey murray the k heard it and he went to atlantic's office offices which were in new york at the time and talked atlantic into releasing it as a single guaranteeing that it would go to number one well murray the k was right it's here at number one and it, it never ceases to amaze me how many songs there were, are out there that were never intended to be singles that eventually were released or by accident found their way to radio and they ended up being big hits and there's probably a ton, right. of, a ton of songs the other way that are buried on albums that, you know, could have been hits that never were because, you know, somebody or the other didn't hear it as a single. So, um, but one of the Rascals better songs, um, Rascals were in another interesting group. They're in a different genre. Uh, they're not really sunshine pop. They're more like, um, uh, blue eyed soul, I guess. Um, and would yeah. continue to have hits for another couple of years, but, um, pretty cool song always pleasant when it comes out on the radio and um like i said kind of a good chill out song i think so yeah yeah definitely yeah so see that's all okay so (laughs) that's it for this (laughs) so what do you have up for us next week well next week first of all we may be recording uh in person together so that's going to be special but um, yes yes (laughs) um one era we haven't really sort of not tackled yet at least not in terms of hot 100 as the mid-70s so i was going to do june 28th 1975 hot 100 um june 28 1975 yeah june 28th 1975 we haven't really hit that period yet we did we did a 76 one but 76 there's a difference between like the summer of 75 and the 76 chart we did because you're sort of pre-disco at this point still um and sort of sort of still in the singer-songwriter era i guess and um kind of the end of an era i guess uh in some respects for some music i don't know and also it's probably one of the first this is when i first like i don't recognize all the songs on the chart but some of these songs were some of the first ones I remember hearing um, on the radio, you know, through, through our parents. So, um, so I figured why not let's do that. Okay. All right. So that's it. We'll jump into the mid seventies next week. Okay. All right. All right. That's all we got. Thanks everybody for listening. Yep. And be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. (laughs) Yep. Definitely do that. Um, I'm already. I'm wearing flowers right now in my hair. Oh, well, I, I don't. I don't really have any hair anymore, so I. I can't do that. So. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't have much either. So, anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. Yep. See you, everyone.